And tonight, despite the fact that anxiety is a very real experience and struggle for so many of us, there's a joy to be found to be had in the gospel. So with that in mind, let's read here the first nine verses of Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, you, you I, could, I practiced this before and I just messed it up. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we look into it. Father, as we ask every week, as we've asked all semester, as we open your word, we pray that it would be to us audibly and internally, that it would be your very words to us, that it would fill our hearts, that it would fill our minds, that it would fill our souls with truth with grace, and with life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so in this passage, if you're familiar with the New Testament, if you're familiar with Philippians, I I assume for a lot of you who are familiar with this book, that verse 6 is really popular. Or you've heard some turn of phrase regarding verse 6. Um, And it's one of those Bible verses when you really read it, and 6 and 7 together, you look at it, you take it in, and you go, does God really expect me to believe that? Let's read it again. Do not be anxious about anything. Now just let that slap you around just for a second. Do not be anxious about anything. All right, Paul, that sounds great. But how? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. All right, it sounds good, Paul. I want it to be true, but that's pie in the sky. I mean, that's what it feels like. That's what it seems like. The thing about anxiety is this. All of us struggle with anxiety. That's a thing about it. Um, some more than others, granted. Uh, but here's the thing about anxiety. Statistics tell us, all you have to do is say that in front of something and people believe you. 
But anyway, sorry. Statistics do tell us anxiety disorders are the most single most common mental health disorder in the United States. Over 40 million adults, nearly 20% of the population, struggles with some sort of anxiety disorder. And uh, what we also see is that treating these disorders cost the United States some $42 billion every single year. So I think you could say, in our culture, in our country, anxiety is a big deal. (laughs) It's prevalent. And then I had that at the college campus, and it's even, uh, even more so. Lest any of you be unduly burdened by the fact that you have struggled or do struggle with anxiety, lest any of you dare to think that you don't struggle with this, let me read you this from a Christian psychologist um, in his book, The Anxiety Cure. He says this, Anxiety is not a disorder that only afflicts the weak, the fragile, and the delicate. Often there is not even the slightest hint of previous anxiety. This is the disorder of presidents, CEOs, VPs, ladder climbers, powerhouses, dynamos, live wires, and go-getters. Those in leadership positions are more likely to be candidates for panic anxiety. And the reason? Anxiety is a disease of stress. So you tell me you're a college student and then you don't struggle with anxiety. Bring it. Anyway, don't do it now. We'll do it later. So what does Paul say to all this? Well... It's what we've seen all semester. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. All right, Paul. How are we going to do that? Well, Paul is trying to tell us that in the gospel, there's a joy in the gospel that doesn't give us anxiety. It actually heals our anxiety. Why? Because it gives us peace. So that's what I want to look at. I want to look at what is anxiety, what is peace, and then how do we get that peace? And I want to give a head nod uh, to Pastor James Forsyth. Um, he's a pastor in Virginia, and his thoughts were uber helpful in this. And so let me break this down. What is anxiety? Well, verse 6 there, so I'm kind of honing, we're honing in on this verse 6 and 7 to understand the whole passage here. You look at verse 6 there, that word, do not be anxious. That Greek word, I find this interesting, literally means to be divided into parts. So the idea, when you carry that out to like the feeling of anxiety, the experience of anxiety, the disorder of anxiety, the main thing that is going on with a person that is dealing with anxiety is that they feel pulled in a million different directions and they feel like they're breaking apart. That's anxiety. And now any of you who have really struggled with this, you're hearing that and you're going, that's exactly what it feels like. Your mind feels like it's in a million pieces, or your life feels like it's in a million pieces, or the uncertainty about your future feels like it's in a million pieces, and nobody's going to be able to put it together. And so you experience anxiety. And at the root of what Paul is pointing us to here, and I'm going to get to this actually at the end of this point, but what Paul is ultimately trying to point us to is that there's a deep spiritual brokenness behind our anxiety. Any experience of it. Now, let me say this at the front. That does not mean that if you experience anxiety in any form, well, that just means you're not praying enough. That's not what Paul's saying. We'll get there. But, and also, I want you to remember, this is actually not the first time the word anxious has come up in this letter. If you go back to Philippians 2, verse 28, when Paul is talking about Epaphroditus and his desire to send him back to the Philippians, he says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, to you, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And that I may be less anxious. So what is Paul admitting to us there? 
he struggles with anxiety. Again, it's not an uncommon thing. It's a very common thing, and more on that in a second. There's three, three dimensions to anxiety. What is anxiety? I think there's, three, there's more than that, but let's just simply break it down into three dimensions. I think you can think of it physically, you can think of it circumstantially, and you can think of it spiritually. Physically, we kind of know this, right? Some of you are just more prone, you're just more disposed to worry about things. You usually get labeled the mom or the dad in your friend group, right? Because you're the one that kind of always is like, do you have a coat? It's cold outside. Have you eaten? You look hungry. Have you, sli- have you slept? You look tired, right? Um, there's a, we always have one of those friends. And then some of you are just naturally, and I'm jealous of you, just more laid back. You're the kind of person that if the house is on fire, you're going to slowly walk to the refrigerator and look inside because you're kind of hungry and you don't want to go outside hungry. I'll be there in a second. It's fine. Everything's fine. It's fine. And so some of us are just hardwired in certain ways. And that's fine. And I, that's a fine. Some of you have dealt with or are dealing with, and you don't even know it, diagnosable clinical anxiety. That's a real thing. It can be treated with medicine, right? It's a real thing. Some of you have experienced fatigue that you have no idea where it came from or how to deal with it. You experience sleeplessness despite the fact that you're exhausted. You've experienced tightness in the chest. You've experienced the chronic feeling of dread of something that you just feel like you have to get out of. You feel chronic loneliness, chronic fear about things that haven't been done yet or things that you worry about getting done. You feel fragmented. You literally feel broken in pieces. And you don't know how to pick any of them up. You have problems at times where you think about everything, but you cannot focus on anything. Anybody experience that? That's my mind. I don't know how any way else to explain it. You think about everything, but you can't focus on anything. Chronically fearful, chronically lonely, you feel out of control, you always think something bad's going to happen. Some of us are predisposed to this in certain physical ways and in our personalities. Another way to think about it is circumstantial, right? There are just certain things in life that can happen that push us towards anxiety, that make us more likely to deal with stress and anxiety. But let me just uh, name a few here because think about, again, it's the most common mental health disorder in our country. There's got to be some some reason why our country or the West, or the West, Western culture, if you want to make it more general, struggles with this so mightily. And I think it's just circumstantial. And here's a few ideas as to why. Um, one thing about our vocational climate, right? In our culture, what you do or what you achieve in this life, for the most part, carries the most weight for your identity, what is the most natural question that you ask? Well, y'all haven't necessarily experienced this because you haven't gotten out of college yet, but one of the most natural, you've heard it, I'm sure. When you meet somebody that works, your most natural question when you're trying to get to know somebody is, well, what do you do? You do this in college too. You ask, well, what's your major, right? Because it's like, I mean, you're here to major in something. Uh, so what do you do? Um, our culture places an enormous amount of value of our identity in what we do. 
And so, and the college campus bears this out like no other place. We live in the middle of a meritocracy. Have y'all ever heard this term? A meritocracy. Meaning that in our culture, especially on the college campus, you are what you do. If you succeed, you're a successful person. If you don't succeed, you're kind of a failure. What are you doing here? Why did you even come? And it's interesting, again, studies show, again, see, so you just say that and it's trustworthy. Studies, but studies have shown, just Google it, that college students today are the most anxious and stressed out generation there has ever been. Y'all feel that? The most anxious and stressed out generation there's ever been. And you want to know what? There's actually other studies that show another trend of something that's growing amongst college students. And I think you'll feel this as well. Perfectionism. You think there's any correlation with that? I read that in Psychology Today, there was an article that said that there was, there's been studies over the years that have examined the differences in perfectionism over the past three decades. And this is what they've shown. That young people's desire to be flawless has skyrocketed in the past 30 years. So we're starting to see maybe why we're the most stressed, anxious generation there's ever been. So there's vocational, there's the meritocracy about achievement. Think about technological advances that we live in, right? One thing technological advances do is they make it easier to do more work, which leaves less time for rest. Technology makes you instantly accessible to everyone. Who goes to bed looking at Snapchat or looking at text messages, right? It used to be email, but I don't think y'all ever check email anymore. Um, I'm so old. Uh, makes you instantly accessible. It makes everyone else instantly accessible to you. Technology floods us with information. I heard quoted one time that in our world today, you can absorb more information in one day than most people a hundred years ago absorbed in a lifetime. Now again, is there any wonder that we are the most stressed and anxious generation that's ever been? At least recorded. Contemporary culture in millions of ways. There's more things we could list as examples. But contemporary culture in millions of ways stretches us beyond our limits. And it breaks us to pieces. And the result is anxiety. You cannot be everywhere at once. You cannot be the expert in everything. You just can't. But we... Feel pushed to try, and it brings about anxiety. It brings out stress and anxiety. And at the root, and I think what Paul would ultimately point us here too, is that at the root of all these surface brokennesses, there lies a deep spiritual brokenness. Because see, at the root of anxiety, the root of definition of anxiety, does, anxiety is a disease of the future. It's looking ahead to things, important things, but they're uncertain and so we try to take control of that uncertainty, and we were never built to do that. And herein lies our spiritual problem. We ought to be able to trust our unknown futures to a known God. But we don't. And because we don't, we look to ourselves to cover all of our bases. And you know what it's doing? It's tearing us apart. And anxiety and stress are the result. Ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, we fail to trust that God has our best interests at heart. And when we doubt that God cares for us, we take it upon ourselves to do it. 
Paul Miller puts it like this in his book, A Praying Life. He says, anxiety wants to be God, but it lacks God's wisdom, his power, and his knowledge. A godlike stance without godlike character and ability is pure tension. So you feel that? We're all trying to be more than we're actually capable of being, and it tears us apart. And so we deal with stress, and we deal with anxiety. But the tricky thing is, is we wake up the next day, and we put ourselves right back in the meat grinder. Why is that? That is the deadly cycle of anxiety. This is the whole... I really don't have time to do this illustration, but I really wanted to. Um, This is the whole deal with Thanos and the Avengers, right? Let me just catch you up to speed. Thanos is like this galactic bad guy. And there's these things called infinity stones. There's a space one, a reality one, a power one, a, a, a mind one, a time one, and a soul one. And yes, I'm a dork. I'm sorry. But see, Thanos has got this gauntlet that can hold all of them. And he's going to take all of it for himself. The second movie hasn't come out, but spoiler alert, you know what it's going to do to him? It's going to tear him apart. Why? Because we were not built to be God. And so we wrestle with anxiety, with stress, and all those effects. So that's anxiety, and that was the longest one, because the rest of this doesn't make sense without this. So if that's anxiety, what is the peace that Paul is pointing us to? What is it? Well, what Paul says here is interesting, because he doesn't just say, look, guys, stop worrying. Just stop. He doesn't say that. What he says is replace it with something else. You don't need to just get away with, uh, get, do away with your worry. You've got to replace it with something else. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You want to know what the biblical word peace means? Interesting. Well, if the Greek word there, anxiety, means to be torn apart, this Greek word peace is actually, it's it's just like the Hebrew word peace, shalom. And you know what it means in the Bible? Wholeness. It doesn't just mean absence of conflict. It means wholeness. In other words, it means to be put back together again. And so what is Paul saying? If we turn to God in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, what will happen? He's saying, God will put you back together again. What is anxiety? It's to be torn apart. What is the peace of God? It's to be whole. And that's what God wants us for, wants for us. It's this all-encompassing, holistic peace that God promises throughout the Bible. And when everything, anything in your life gets out of whack, out of line, then your shalom has been threatened, has been broken down. But God says that His work of salvation is to bring shalom, is to bring wholeness, uh, to bring the broken pieces of us and the world back together. And the Bible actually talks about this in two ways. Uh, There's two kinds of peace. Here we read about the peace of God, but there's also peace with God. They're two different things. Well, peace with God is the peace we read about in Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What does that mean? It means we're not at enmity with Him anymore. It means we're not enemies 
uh, enemies with him anymore. It means we're not sinners in the hands of an angry God anymore. He has justified us. We were enemies. We were ungodly. We were unholy. But we read further in Romans 5 there that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has reached out, put us back into right relationship with himself, and we have peace with him. We're no longer against Him. And if, we're no, if we have peace with Him, then what naturally flows then into our hearts is His peace. The peace of God. If I'm now on God's side, things that are true of Him now become true of me. God is whole. God is perfect. God is one. I am broken and pulled in a million different ways. But when, I have, when God through Christ has made peace with me, I now get His peace inside of me. I'm made whole again. I really can strive for and find a quietness and confidence of soul. Because I get things that are true of Him and they're true of me. In the Old Testament, uh, there was a recitation that the Old Testament believers would say at worship, kind of like how we Christians very frequently use the Lord's Prayer. Well, in the Old Testament, if you look at Deuteronomy 6.4, there was something that Israelites would recite at worship all the time. They would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's just a statement. Now, why would that become such a big statement in the Old Testament uh, economy of following God? Well, what, what kind of religions was the world full of? Polytheistic religions, many religions. If you were a farmer, you had a god of your farm. If you were a soldier, you had a god of war. If you were a swimmer, you had a god of water. I don't know. I'm trying to think of things on the go here. Um, if you were a state fan, you had a god of the cowbell. Um, that was good. Great. But what the Israelites would constantly recite to remind each other of As as much as the world tries to pull us in a million different directions, our God is one. He's whole. And then the next verse you read there in Deuteronomy 6 is, Therefore, worship the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. In in other words, worship Him in a oneness, in a singular direction. That's the peace that God uh, has for us, the peace of God which will surpass understanding. Well, how do we get that peace? Let's end it with that. How do we get that peace? And that kind of actually is how this whole passage is about. Well, you see the first thing there in, the, in verse 2 and 3. You notice how when he brings up Euodia and Syntyche, he doesn't mention what they've had a falling out over. There's a sense in which I think Paul didn't care what it was about. He just cared that they had a falling out. That if we have peace with God, and therefore should have the peace of God, broken relationships do not equate. Within the church, within the body of Christ, there is to be a wholeness, a shalom. And that goes to our relationships, even between two specific women at this church. Personal disagreement. There was no room for it in the light of the gospel is what he's saying. Now, we don't have time to do this, but you can just think back a little bit through church history. And you've seen there's been tons of fractures throughout church history. Tons of blatant ones. But what we're being told is, it doesn't matter who's right, who's wrong. If it comes to a personal agreement, if the gospel's at stake, that's what matters. 
Because it's peace with God and the peace of God. And then in verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness be known. The Lord is at hand. Do you actually notice that's the reason we shouldn't be anxious? Because the Lord is at hand. Well, guess what? There's only one group of people in all the earth that should not be anxious if the Lord is coming back. And that's people who have peace with God. You get it? They're connected. You, to get to the peace of God, you have to have peace with God. To the degree that you forget or ignore the peace that you have or could have in Jesus with God, to that degree, the peace of God will always be elusive to you. The thing is, some of y'all are saying, well, I'm a Christian, so I guess that means I have it. Now, I'm talking about every single area of your life. See, this is the thing about anxiety. Because it tears us into thousands of pieces, every little piece of your life can be filled with anxiety at any moment. And so what areas of your life, that the first foundational question is, what areas of my life am I not living as if I had peace with God? Because if I'm not living in those areas as if I had peace with God, then peace of God is not even something I should think about. To the degree that you ignore or forget peace with God, the peace of God will be elusive. And it's to that degree your life will be an endless game of picking up shattered pieces. So the first question for all of us is, do I have peace with God? Do I actually know what peace with God is? And how it defines every area of my life. For example, do I know, if I know the gospel and therefore I know peace with God, do I know that Jesus' work for me and His righteousness for me is all I need? Meaning there's not one area in my life where God says, you better prove yourself. So what areas of my life am I living as if God was saying to me, you better prove yourself? Do I look at my grades? Do I look at my career trajectory and say, I better prove myself or else? You are forgetting or blatantly ignoring in that area of your life what it means to have peace with God. Do I pursue work and do I pursue achievement because without it, I feel like I'm nothing? You don't understand what peace with God means. So why would you expect peace of God to affect that area of your life? Put it another way. Do I know if I understand peace with God? Do I know that God's love makes him my loving father? And it made me who was once his enemy in my heart. It makes me now a son or a daughter. Do I know that? How does the way that you talk about other people answer that question? How does the way that you treat alcohol on the weekends or every night answer that question? How does what you do with your girlfriend or boyfriend Answer that question. We were just sleeping together. It doesn't mean anything. Does it? To know the peace of God, we have to know and we have to live into peace with God. We have to have it 
in our relationships with each other and with God himself. Second way to get this peace, verse 6. He says, he lays it out pretty plainly. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And look, we could go into that. We could have spent the whole 30 minutes on this. Because we all struggle with prayer. We all feel inadequate in prayer. We all feel that we should pray more, that it should be more vibrant. Fill in the blank. And it should, and we should be working at it. But let me, let me just throw this out. Do you know why we all struggle with prayer? Prayer is a song, a cry of dependence. And we struggle with prayer because the last thing we want to admit is that we need to depend on anything. Some of you experience a lot of weakness and brokenness and you feel like, oh, I know I'm weak. But have you thought that maybe the main reason you struggle with your weaknesses is because you know that it's telling you you're dependent and you don't want to admit that. And you don't want that to be the case. Instead, of you don't see the solution as being more dependent on God. You see the solution as being less dependent. God quoted Paul Miller earlier. He said that anxiety is a godlike stance without godlike character and ability. Anxiety is a godlike stance without godlike character and ability. And he notes then after that that it's an interesting irony that you know who actually fully showed us what it was like not to be godlike? God Himself. <laughs> we looked at this in Philippians 2. It took God himself coming down to show us what it was like to not try to be godlike. Isn't that a weird irony? Jesus was the first person in all of history who did not seek his own independence. You read through the Gospels, his life and his ministry is defined by an utter dependence upon his Father and upon the Spirit. And prayer was one of the hallmarks of his ministry. We read over and over again, he would withdraw to pray. And he would withdraw to pray. And he would withdraw to pray. Why? Because he knew he was dependent. Here's why prayer and thanksgiving... um, All the sentence says is prayer and thanksgiving to anxiety. I left out a word. Here's why prayer and thanksgiving are an antidote to anxiety. I think that's what it meant to say. Prayer and supplication is the practice of admitting out loud that we need something and we can't do anything about it. Thanksgiving is the practice of acknowledging that no matter what comes my way, it is God's good and perfect gift for me. You're starting to see how that would drive anxiety out. Regularly admitting my need. And regularly giving thanks no matter the circumstance. The final one is this. Look at me with ver- at verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Set your mind on these things. Look at what is good and what is true and just put your mind on that. Now, is Paul just saying, like, put on some figuratively in your mind ruby red slippers and say, there's no place like home, there's no place like home? No. But I do. Do you find it interesting that one of the main causes of anxiety is that we try to do too much 
And here at the end, Paul says, look, just do this. Say, I didn't think that was the answer, Paul. Thanks. Here's a way I thought of illustrating it. There's there's been a common phenomenon with all my kids. I've got four kids. A common phenomenon, especially when they were younger. Uh, As kids are wont to do, when they get hurt, you know, like genuinely hurt uh, or genuinely really scared, they have a tendency to just freak themselves out, right? Like just that rush of adrenaline, the rush of emotion just comes bursting out and screaming and like, you know, I've got like this bear scrape that just turned red, but I'm bleeding to death. You know, that kind of response. But there's always, there was usually a common, there's usually been a common help if I'm in a mood enough that's patient and loving toward my children. That's another sermon. Um, I get down, I put my hands on their shoulders and I say this, I say, Look at me. You're okay. And I don't know why it's like this magic bullet, but it's like, <gasps> you know, and the whimpers just kind of go down. It's like, look at me. You're okay. It's like they just need something to break through for just a moment to help them remember I'm not dying, <laughs> right? And usually they stop and they begin to calm down. Something interesting Jesus does in the upper room, John in John 14 records it for us. The disciples, they're starting to piece together that what Jesus is telling them is that he's leaving. And guess what? They get anxious about it. And so they're asking him all these questions like, if we don't know where you're going, how can we follow? Like, why would you leave us? All these questions. And finally he says this to them. Now think about this. Within in less than 12 hours, he's going to be dead. And he says this to them. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace, I leave you. My peace, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You know what I think Jesus is saying in that moment, and what I think he says to us? As I think he says things like, look, I know, I know your personality, I know your physiology, and you might be predisposed to worry. Or, look, I understand that there come certain stages of your life where your circumstances, you can't handle them all. And it leads you to worry. I get it. But you know what I think Jesus is saying here that the ministry of His Spirit is? Is this. Look at me. You're okay. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And isn't that how Paul ends it? Do these things, yes. Why? Because the peace of God is with you. It is. Your anxiety can't drive it away. It's with you. There is a joy in finding the peace that picks up the pieces and puts us back together again. We all want that. Let's pray.
Father, we do long in so many ways, in so many instances, in so many feelings, just to have some peace. Would we remember that it's ours? It is ours in Jesus. Because Jesus is in us. We pray this in the power only of his spirit and to the glory of his name. Amen.